Turn to chapter 5, verse 14 in 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians five fourteen. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So last week we looked at verses twelve and thirteen, and we saw Paul's request to the brethren to appreciate those who diligently labor among them, have charge over them, and give them instruction or admonition, which is the same word that we see here in verse 14, for admonish. And so we saw that this was likely a reference to the elders among them, the pastors among them, that Paul was saying, appreciate them, the pastors among you, the ones who have charge over you, esteem them highly, we saw that the, the, this was a, a message to the people in the church to esteem, to think highly of the elders, but we also saw in verse 12 that this was a, a clear understanding of what pastors should be doing. They should be diligent in their labor. They should have charge over the flock. In, that, in other words, they should keep watch over them. They should be overseers, is another word the Bible uses, and they should give instruction or admonition to the people. This week we see Paul turning more to specific direction in the Christian life. Well, he's, he's referencing uh, direction in the Christian life in some ways in, in, their, in what they should be doing in the local church and esteeming their elders, esteeming their pastors. And now he turns to more direction about how they are to treat each other, not just the elders, but everyone in the faith. We urge you, brethren, he uses that word again, brethren, to do these things. But before we proceed, I think it is important that we lay a good uh, groundwork first. Because if we aren't careful, we can easily fall into a kind of do-better, moralizing sermon. Or a moralizing uh, way of reading the scriptures. We can look at verse 14 that I just read and say, Okay, here's things that I need to add to my list of do's. I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this. And so church or Christianity becomes a list of things you're supposed to do. Perhaps some of you think of it that, that way. Being a Christian is having a list on my wall and doing this, doing this, avoiding this, avoiding this. And Christianity is just a list of things to do and things to not do. So if we're not careful, we'll fall into that. And the sermon will come across as a, be better, people. Do better. Work harder. Try harder. Be better. Be better. So before we get into it, I think it's important for us to lay a groundwork so that we avoid that error. That we think that our relationship with God rests on our ability to do what he says. That's essentially the problem with this do better moralism. God wants you to do all these things so that you can have a right relationship with him. That's the view of moralism. And so sermons who are in that vein say... Work harder at doing this. Do more of this. Don't forget to do this. Don't do that. Avoid this. Do that. And so if you do all these things, then God will be pleasantly disposed towards you. He will think better of you. You will be closer to him. You will be reconciled to him. And this is easy to do when we see a verse like this. That there's just a list of things for us to do. As 
If we were to be honest, that is what he's doing. He's saying, I urge you, brethren, do this stuff. So we need to think of these commands. Instead of going to the opposite side and be like, no, don't even look at them as commands. Don't even look at it as a list of things to do. No, that's too dangerous. No, that's, that's going too far the other way. What we need to do is understand these commands in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul talks. That's how the Christian life is to be lived. We keep away from this moralistic gospel by remembering to root the commands of Scripture, like these commands here in verse 14, in the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ has done everything necessary to save us. And that even on the cross, Christ has won our obedience to the commands. So when we understand ourselves right with God, it is not based on us keeping commands like this. It is based 100% on the cross of Christ. When we stand before the throne of judgment, we say our satisfaction, our payment for sin, our acceptance with the Father is 100% there on the cross. That's how we avoid falling into a moralism. But then the second part of that is, is absolutely necessary, that we understand that even on the cross, as, as Jesus has made the payment for our sin to reconcile us with the Father, he has also, in the cross and in giving his spirit to us, given us the means to walk in obedience. So now you have a place for the commands. These commands aren't here for us to make ourselves right with God. These commands are here because God has already made us right with him in his son, Jesus Christ. Think of it as a marriage. We have committed to each other. We have, we have covenanted with each other. We have promised to each other for life at the exclusion of all other men and women. It is you and I for life. So, because we have committed to each other, here's how we should treat each other. Right? It is not, I am committed to you only insofar as you treat me well. If you think of it that way, then you've gotten marriage backwards. Because it's my commitment rises and falls or gets stronger and weaker according to how my spouse treats me. Oh, they treated me bad today? I don't know. I may leave them. I may leave them. No, your marriage, the strength of your marriage is rooted in your commitment to each other to say, no matter what, we are committed to each other. So because of that, let's work through these issues. Let's work at this. We're committed to each other for life, so let's, let's walk together and, 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 and figure out and work together about how to love each other better, to be more patient with each other. That's how it is with Christ. You're committed to him. You are, you are in him, reconciled to the Father, and so then you say, how can I love him? How can I show obedience and joy and, and, and worship to my Savior by walking in his commands? So you have the commands in their proper place. And... Partly so you don't see that I'm making that up. We see it here in Paul. Paul does this. He roots the commands. He roots what he says in verse 14 in the gospel of verses 9 and 10. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Look at verses 9 and 10. The same chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. You see, it's clear. How will we live together forever with him? How will that happen? By keeping the commandments? By admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, by helping the weak, by being patient with everyone? 
by living in love, by esteeming our elders? Is that how we will live together with him? No, no, no. Verse 10. He died for us. That's how we will live together with him. Because he died for us. And why did he die for us? Is it because we are worthy of him doing that? Is it because we've kept the commands? And so Jesus is like, you know what? They've tried their best. They've kept the commands. I'll die for them to make up the difference. No. He died for us because of verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved because God has destined us for salvation in Jesus Christ, his son. So our salvation is out of God's purpose and grace, as we talked about in Sunday school. It is not something that we bring to God and say, is this enough? And then God says, I guess it'll do. No. We come to God empty-handed. And in fact, we can't even come to God except that he, he shows us his worth. He shows us the, the worth of Jesus Christ, his son. He shows us our sin, and we say, I repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone to pay for my sin. God does that in us. God is the one who destined, destines us for salvation only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we talked about in this verse, 9 and 10, we have the past and the future. We have God destining us in the past. He has not destined us. He's done this in the past. We also have Christ in verse 10. He died for us, past tense. But we also have our future. He's destined us. That's destiny. That's what's going to happen in the future. In the future, we will obtain salvation. Meaning, instead of wrath and judgment, we will have salvation with Jesus Christ. We'll be with him forever. And then verse 10, future, we will live together with him. So Paul is saying, you live between this past, this wonderful past of God destining you for salvation, Christ dying for you, and this wonderful future of, of obtaining salvation in him and living together with him. You stand between this past and future. So it's almost like Paul saying, starting at verse 11 and on, okay, so what do you do in the in-between, Christian? You have this wonderful past that Jesus died for you. You have this wonderful future of living together with Jesus forever. What do you do in the meantime? What about the in-between? What about the present? Past, present, future. What about the present? I think that's what he, why he starts in verse 11 to say, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. In other words, because of this wonderful truth in the past and this wonderful truth in the present, here in the past and the future, here's what you do in the present. You build one another up. You encourage one another. Verse 12 and 13, you think highly of your pastors. You esteem them because of their work, not because of their office, but because of their work, as we talked about. So you think highly of them because they are teaching you scriptures. They are admonishing you. They're, they're talking to you about your Lord Jesus Christ. And so you think highly of them. You live in peace with one another. And then our, our verse today, you admonish the unruly, you encourage the faint-hearted, you help the weak, and you're patient with everyone. So put it another way, <clears throat> we as Christians are moving toward our destiny, which is salvation. We are moving toward our objective, if we're thinking about it in military terms. This is our objective, soldiers. This is where we're going. We can see that our objective, our future, is salvation, but we see throughout this book, this letter, that Paul has also talking, spoken several times about Christ's coming. So our salvation is at his coming. You see it there in verse 13 of chapter 3. 
so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Then we see it there in chapter 5, the one we're in. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our salvation comes at, at, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are blameless in him. And so we are, because of the cross of Christ, he died for us, and we're moving toward the coming of Christ. You can say that he is our beginning, our middle, and our end, that we are moving toward Jesus Christ. We are glorifying Jesus Christ. He is our objective. We don't have salvation apart from him. So it's not as if Jesus sets up salvation over here and then says, y'all run to that. No, he says, salvation is here in me. When Jesus comes to judge the earth, we will not see a terrifying judge and, and, and shrink from him will say, hey, I know him. That's my savior. But those who don't know him will shrink from him as a terrifying judge. But we know Jesus as savior. He is our objective. He is our mission. That's what we're moving toward. When we think about the coming of Christ, we're not to like, oh, be, be nervous and, and wring our hands, but to say yes and move toward it, run toward it. Why? Because he will establish our hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at his coming. This is what Jesus is for us. He is our objective. He is our mission. And we see this in, in at least four ways in this letter. I think you can come up with more. But at least four ways we see this in this letter. And again, remember, this is groundwork for how we understand these, these commands here in verse 14. Number one, the first way we see this, that Jesus is our objective, he is our mission, is as we saw in verse 9, that salvation is in him. It is not separate from him, but it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our salvation. We are running to him. Number two, we, he, he establishes our hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father. So holiness at his coming. There in verse chapter 3, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 23, the verses I read, that this holiness is reflective of our Savior Jesus Christ. And so this holiness is, a, is, a, is a, a, an objective of being like Jesus. So again, he is our objective. He is our mission. Then number three, witness of him to the world. We see this in chapter four, verses 12 and 13. He says, so that you will not grieve as the rest who, do, who have no hope. So you will treat death as, a, as a being asleep, that you will, you will grieve in hope and, and be a witness to the world who grieves without hope. You see this in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So Paul says, don't be asleep like the world. Don't be drunk like the world, but be awake and alert because you are a son of light, not a son of darkness. So you are showing the light in this dark world. And so you are showing Christ. You're a witness of Christ to the world in the way that you handle death, in the way that you are alert instead of asleep. And then the fourth and final reason the way we see this in this letter is Paul saying, love one another. We see this several places. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And chapter 5, verse 13. We saw it last week. You love your pastors, it says. So you are modeling Christ's love for us in your love for one another. So you show Christ as your mission, not only as you as you are running toward future salvation in him, but you show him in your life in your witness to the world, in your love for one another. So he is your mission from beginning to end. I've got salvation in him, but also I want to glorify him in my body. I want to glorify him by how I live and how I speak and how I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to show Jesus this is who he is. And I do that by showing a changed life. 
All this is in and through Jesus Christ. We make a mistake when we think of Christianity as something separate from him. I feel like that's a common theme in my sermons, but it's because something, it's something I tripped over over and over and over, as if Jesus is the head of some organization, that he's like kind of just the figurehead. No, Jesus is Christianity. Jesus is Christianity. You, you go to the scriptures and you read Paul's letters and you read the gospels to see Jesus, to love him, to grow in him, to, to relish him, to enjoy him. That's Christianity. All this is in and through Jesus Christ. So with that groundwork laid, hopefully, we come to verse 14, our passage today. When we come to this direction in verse 14, we can understand maybe, we can understand it as mission objectives. So we as believers, we as Christians are marching toward Christ. He's our objective. He's our mission. We have a direction, we have movement, we have trajectory. And so it makes sense if you think in in terms of soldiers that we have this one mission, we have this one uh, objective. Therefore, help your brothers, your soldiers in arms, your brothers in arms, go toward the same place. So clearly, every man for himself doesn't fit, right? Can you imagine if a squad of soldiers thought that way? They're parachuted into enemy territory, and as soon as they hit the ground, they're like, every man for himself, and they just run into the bushes. They wouldn't get accomplished much, would they, right? They landed together as a team to support each other. What if one of them gets shot or gets hurt, and he's by himself? Well, I got shot, and my, and my intestines are hanging out. I guess I got to walk out of here. No, if his brothers in arms are with him, they can carry him. They can bind him up. They can call in a helicopter. They are supporting each other. And guess what? The mission is more likely to be accomplished, isn't it? And yet sometimes we think of the Christian life in that way. Every man for himself. Good luck, bro. That's not Christianity. And I think that's why so often Christians find themselves floundering and flailing and saying, they can't get a leg up. They keep falling into the same things. And it's because they're trying this Lone Ranger Christianity. Friends, that is foreign to the New Testament. Absolutely foreign. Well, I don't need to go to church. I church at home. No, you don't. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ to stand with you. If you get shot in the gut, they bind you up and they carry you out. You can't do that with just you by yourself. You, have to, you need the church, you need the body to stand with you. If you think that Christianity is every man for himself, you're not far from saying something like this. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's the, that's the sad refrain in the book of Judges. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Over and over it says that. And if you're not careful, you'll, find, you'll kind of slide into that kind of Christianity, which is not Christianity, which this is my relationship with God. I have built it almost like from a buffet. I got a little bit of this. I got a little bit of this. I got a little bit of this. And it's, I'm just taking parts of scripture. I'm taking parts of churches. And I've got my own thing going that I just kind of do on my own at home. You are not meant to live that way. You're meant to live in submission to a local body. You're meant to live with brothers and sisters who are marching with you, who are committed to the mission as you are, and will hold you and pull you out if you run into trouble. So much of modern American Christianity is individualistic, and it was never meant to be. If you don't believe me, look at 1 Corinthians 12. 
which I'll mention here in a moment. But Paul says that we are members of a body. And there is no part of that body that is not necessary. We need each other. I can't look at a brother and sister in Christ and say, ah, you don't, I don't need you. I got what I need at home. No, you need them. You need them. You have blind spots. You have, you have, they have gifts that you don't have. They have discernment maybe that you don't have. They, have. they have knowledge of scripture that you don't have. You need them speaking into your life. And we see this as we move into our text, verse 14. So hopefully you have that as a background, that we are believing in Jesus Christ. We're standing in the cross. We're standing in Christ for salvation. And out of that flows our obedience to his commands. And out of that flows our walking in, in unity toward this common goal, which is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Getting into our text. First, we see that this is to all believers. We urge you, brethren... I say that because some have seen this as a continuation, verses 12 and 13, as a, as a, 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 a duty that is for elders, for pastors. But I think it's clear here that Paul's saying this is all the brethren. The previous section was to all the brethren that they should appreciate their elders and esteem their pastors, but now Paul proceeds to add more direction for them. That is all the brothers, not just the elders, but all believers. Also, what Paul says here in verse 14, Paul says elsewhere to Christians, like Romans 12. So this isn't only for pastors and elders, but this is for all believers. All believers are to admonish. All believers are to encourage the faint-hearted. All are, are, are to help the weak. All are to be patient with everyone. And so take this as being toward you, believer, as a Christian, as a member of the body of Christ, as a member uh, of the faith. Paul says, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. As we talked about last week, admonish means to warn, or you can think of it as pointing out, pointing out an issue to someone. Admonish has similar, is, is similar to rebuke or reproof, meaning it is somewhat pointed. It, it is not just this uh, passive kind of, well, maybe you should think about it, but kind of like, I'm concerned about you, brother. I'm, I'm warning you, brother, about this thing. Another word that we could use is possibly is correction. Interestingly, though, though it is pointed, it has that connotation of pointing out to people. This verb's use in the New Testament is always in relation to someone you care about. That's something that we need to be careful to remember. Because it's easy for us to carry a Bible around and be like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. I have all the answers, right? But scripturally, admonishing someone when, they, when, when it's used of admonishing someone, it's always someone that you love, that you care about. I'll give you a couple examples. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, I admonish you as my beloved children. He loves them. They are his beloved. So he admonishes them. He points out. He corrects them. Second, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3.15, a few pages to the right, Paul says, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But notice he says, admonish him, point out to him, correct him as a brother. Not as an enemy. How would you do it to an enemy? Well, probably you're going to be um, angry and condescending to your enemy. Oh, you're, you don't know anything. You need a lot of correction. But if you're doing it to a brother, you say, brother, bro, I'm noticing this. You might want to be careful there, man. I'm warning you, like that, that, the end of that road is destruction. 
I'm warning you that your, your view of this is going to lead to trouble, bro. That's out, of, that's out of love for your brother. We also see the noun form in Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 4. To raise your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word translated instruction in the New American Standard is the same word in the Greek, admonish or admonition, the discipline and admonition of the Lord. So the view there is that you're raising your children up in, in instruction or in, in discipline and in correction or pointing things out, right? As a parent, if, you're, if your child is doing something that's dangerous, you're not going to be like, well, I better not point it out might hurt their feelings. No, you'll point it out, like, son, daughter, warning, careful, watch out, that's hot, dangerous, right? Why do you do that? You love them, right? You do it out of love. Now, there are ways you can do it in an unloving way. Yo, you stupid, uh, like, no. But to, to, to say, I'm not gonna point out, I'm not gonna do all these things because I, don't, I wanna be loving, no, that's not right. You point out these things in a loving way, gently saying, Warning, take care, watch for yourself. So Paul is saying that we as Christians are to do that for each other. Admonition is a gentle correction or warning or pointing out sin or dangers in the life of someone you love. Can we do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Point out things in their life that are either sins or dangers to them in a gentle way. Because we love them. And you say, why are we spending time on this so much time? Is because the world would say, if you say anything pointed, if you say anything pointed to somebody, you are confrontational and you are unloving. That's why we need to push back against that in some ways and say, no, actually the Bible says that we are to point out, but we must do it in a way that's caring and gentle and loving. Why? Because, as I said, every mention of it here is to someone that they loves. I'm warning you as my beloved brother. I'm warning you as my beloved child. I'm warning you as my beloved friend. Right? Because I love you, I'm pointing out to you. Now, why? Why should we do that? Why should we point out to our brothers and sisters? We're just going to get a lot of grief. They're going to be like, who are you? You think you're perfect? And it'll turn into a whole thing, so I'm just going to avoid it. No. One, it's a command that we are clearly to do it in Scripture. But let me give you another reason. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Look what Paul says. His reasoning for admonishing every man. Every man. Paul says, We proclaim him, which is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Notice this. This is awesome. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. I am going to teach and point out, I'm going to correct, I'm going to admonish every man, it means Christian here, so that they will be complete in Christ at his coming. Josh, we already saw in Thessalonians that this is a work of God. He does it. Yes, he does. How does he do it? Through your admonishment and teaching. Isn't that amazing? God in his supernatural power is sanctifying, is purifying a people for himself. And how does he do it? But through the church. Through the word, through the spirit, and through the church. Isn't that amazing? So when you say, I'm not going to point out to my brother in Christ, 
Ah, it's just uh, it's uncommon comfortable. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Do you realize that you are not taking part in God's wonderful plan of sanctifying your brother? God will do it. He has promised. But why not be used by God to do it? And then your brother responds and repents or, or turns in his ways and you say, glory to God. He used me to help my brother. Isn't that amazing? God does that. He uses the church to present every man complete in Christ. The spirit is working through the word and through the brothers and through the body of Christ to bring them complete in him. Blameless at his coming. This does not mean that admonishment means maintaining superiority over somebody or lording it over somebody or putting someone in their place. No, as we said, admonishment must be in love. Love for Christ and love for that brother. We see this in the, in the passage I read to open the service. Look at it, Colossians chapter 3, just a page over. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Look at how Paul puts this together. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So you see what he's doing? In verse 12 he's saying, this is who you are. You've been chosen, brothers. You're considered holy and beloved by this awesome God. So because of that, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And remember that the standard of your forgiving and your bearing with one another is looking at how much God has forgiven you. So how much has he bore with you? How much has he been gentle with you and kind and compassionate with you and patient with you? So you should be with them. And put on love, brothers. God loved you. You're verse 12. You are beloved by God. So let that love of God pour out of you into your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let this peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So you see what he's doing. Love and patience and kindness and humility. But then he adds in verse 16, admonishment. So admonishment must be done in a spirit of love rooted in understanding what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. How do I love my brothers and sisters? I don't stare hard at them and be like, I've got to find something lovable in you. I'm not seeing much. Give up. No. You look at Christ. You look at Jesus. And you say, his love for me blows me away. And that love, I'm going to give on to my brothers and sisters. Not because of anything in them, but because of everything in him. Does that make sense? Let me also just say, that's what you do in a marriage, by the way. How do you love your spouse well? You look at the one who loves you well, Jesus Christ, and say, I'm going to take that as my standard. I'm going to take that as my marching orders, and I'm going to love you the way he loves me. 
Sound familiar? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's Ephesians 5. So husbands, love your wives, not by looking at her and being like, oh, I gotta, I gotta find something. Of course you will because you've fallen in love with her, but it, do, it doesn't depend on, and on, on make sure that she has enough things in her to be lovable. No, you look at Christ and say, I'm gonna love her in that way. Christ loves us that way. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, look how lovely they are. Us who are down here shaking our fist and cursing his name. He says, I'm going to show my love for them and that while they are yet sinners, God shows his love for us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that is our standard, even as we admonish one another. Paul says, who do we admonish? He says, you admonish the unruly. Back to our text. You admonish the unruly. Now, some translations say the idle, some say irresponsible, some say undisciplined. The word there in the Greek is ataktos, meaning literally out of order, out of order. And it carries kind of a military connotation, like out of rank or disorderly. A, a military person who is out of his rank or out of step. You can imagine a, a platoon of soldiers marching in step and one of them is throwing him off and people are bumping into him and he's out of order. Most scholars think, and I agree, that this fits with the idol that we talked about in chapter 4, those who are not working, or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, those who live an undisciplined life. And that word there translated in 2 Thessalonians is also, in the New American Standard, is translated unruly or undisciplined life. So if we view the Christian life as a mission, as I talked about before, like kind of as a military mission, with Christ as its objective, then we can see the problem with a soldier who is idle or disorderly, can't we? He's not only refusing the objective, he's like, I don't really want to work. I don't really want to contribute. So he's refusing to go to the objective, but he's also hindering the others in their work. Think of a, a group of soldiers that parachuted behind enemy lines, and one of them just wants to nap and kind of lay around. And he kind of is eating his, eating his energy bars and just kind of throwing the wrappers. And the guys are like, dude, we don't want them to know we're here. Why are you leaving your wrappers everywhere? Ah. Not only is he not pulling his weight, he's actually endangering the lives of his fellow soldiers, isn't he? And so it makes sense for the sergeant to say, Private so-and-so, get it together. You're, you're endangering yourself and your platoon. Get discipline. Quit being idle. Get in step. March with your brothers in arms. Pull your weight. So it makes sense that Paul says to admonish this unruly one, this undisciplined, this idle one. But notice in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is talking to the same person, the unruly idle man. And he says, this is, this is what the verse I read earlier, regard him, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he's still a brother. You still admonish him in love. You say, you are my brother in arms. You are my fellow believer in Christ. Get it together. Walk, walk with us. Um, work with us. Run to Christ with us, brother. Paul in 2 Thessalonians commands and exhorts in verse 12, commands and exhorts such persons in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Paul then says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. 
In verse 6, he says, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly or undisciplined or idle life. Yet admonish him as a brother. And so what, would, what form does admonishment take? What, is it, what, what are we to say when we are to correct or to point out to people? I think Paul does it here in verse 14 to this unruly person. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he'll be put to shame. So I think what Paul is saying, admonish him with the contents of this letter. Show him this letter. Say, this is what our apostle, this is what, this is what our, 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 this is a communication from God that God inspired this scripture in, in the writings of Paul. And he's saying to, to work for your bread, to, 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 uh, to work in quiet fashion and to eat your own bread, to lead a disciplined life, to follow his example. Verse 8. So our admonishment must be based on scripture, not opinion or tradition. Not, it seems to me, or you need to meet me as the standard. You, you, your life needs to reflect my life. I'm the standard. No, you hold up Scripture. You hold up Paul's instruction in this letter and say, here's what God says. Here's your marching orders. Remember our mission is Jesus Christ. Who is that? It says right here. That's what I think the content of our admonishment should be. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of Scripture. Now, it's not to be our opinion, or it's not to be tradition, like this is what the church has always done, do this. No, Scripture. Unless, of course, you mean the tradition in verse 6. Paul says, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. What is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, not only what we have taught you, but what we have modeled for you. We see that in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So Paul's saying, go according to our teachings, what we have taught you, but also what we have shown for you, our example to you. So we don't say be an example to the pastor, be an example to me, or, or follow the example of the pastor, but you follow the example of Paul as an apostle, as a representative of Jesus Christ. So we admonish our brothers and sisters in Christ to follow the example of Paul, to follow the teaching of Paul, to follow the example of Christ in obedience to our Lord's commands. So that's what the content of our admonishment should be. Moving on, Paul says, he says, admonish the unruly, the next thing he says, is encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage meaning to console or support the faint-hearted. I like the word in the Greek here for faint, translated faint-hearted. Literally, it is little-spirited. Oligosukos, little-spirited. It is someone who has a little spirit. I, I, I like to think of a stove, maybe that the, the burners aren't working anymore, and so now all you have is a little pilot light burning. Some of you may be in that moment right now. You feel discouraged. You feel kind of beat down. You feel exhausted. You feel feeble. All you have left is just little pilot light burning. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you have felt that way. Or maybe you know somebody who feels that way. You're just exhausted. Maybe you're saddened. Maybe some of these Thessalonians were saddened by the, the loss of their friends that we saw in chapter 4, that they, that they have died, and so they're wondering what, what will happen to them at the coming of Christ. And so Paul's saying, don't grieve as the world does. Grieve with hope. But they're still grieving. Maybe they're saddened. 
So how do we encourage our faint-hearted brothers and sisters? Well, maybe you know the world's way. And maybe you think it's stupid like I do. What's the world's way of encouraging the faint-hearted? You're stronger than you know, brother. Have you heard that? You have more reserves of strength than you know. You're stronger than your circumstances. Right? What are they doing? Look within. Look within for that hidden reserve of strength. Be built up in your esteem. Think highly of yourself. Dig down. You are a, a warrior. Right? Sometimes you see those memes or whatever about going to the gym. Like, you are a, you are a god or whatever. You are a warrior. You are a beast. And so it's like this self-esteem building yourself up. And it's like, yes, I can do it. I can fan this flame because I have something in me. I have something. I have a reserve of strength. I am a man. I will do it. You're stronger than you know. That's baloney. That's baloney. If you've ever tried it, you see it's baloney. You don't point to yourself. Especially as in the context here, Paul's talking to a spiritual battle. You don't look at the spiritual forces arrayed against you, Satan and all his demons, and the world full of, uh, of sin and wickedness and idolatry, and you say, I can do this. No, you can't. But you know one who can. That's who you look at. You don't look at yourself. You point to your Savior God. You don't think Paul is, is soaking us in verses 9 and 10 in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he gets to verse 14 and says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and, and encourage the, the, the feeble-hearted or the faint-hearted to dig within themselves and, and be who they were meant to be in themselves. No. You point to Jesus. You point to your Savior God and say, there is my power, there is my strength, there is my encouragement. Let me give you a couple of passages. So if you are faint-hearted or you know someone who's faint-hearted, Put these verses in front of them and encourage them with the word of God. Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. Look at where the psalmist's hope is. This is David. Look at where David's hope is. This is fantastic. He says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. This is amazingly countercultural. Are you in despair? Are you faint hearted? You look at the goodness of the Lord. You wait for Him. And He says, Be strong and let your heart take courage. How? Like, okay, be strong, heart. Come on, heart. No. Your strength and your, your courage comes in waiting for the Lord. Lifting your eyes up to Him and say, there is where my help comes from, in the hills where my help comes from. I don't look in here, I look up there, look at Him. Let me give you another example, a couple of pages over. Psalm 31, very similar, 23 and 24. Again, look at, how he, look at where His eyes are. Look at what he's looking at, what he's hoping in. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, 
all you who hope in the Lord. Where's your strength come from? Where's your courage come from? Hoping in the Lord. Notice too, verse 23, the Lord preserves you. You don't preserve you. He preserves you. And look what he does to the proud doer, the one who's taken advantage of you, who's, who's, who seemingly has everything going right for them and has all the money, all the power, all the health, all this stuff, and he's proud. Look what God does. He will fully recompense the proud doer, meaning justice of God. God will make everything right in the end. He will vindicate his lowly ones, his ones who are low in the earth, who were, who were the, the poor in spirit, who were low in the earth. God will raise them up in the heavenly places. He's already done it in Christ. But he will show it to all the world. He will say, these are my chosen ones. These are my beloved ones. He will vindicate you. You don't turn your eyes to yourself and to the world and say, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only. No, you lift your eyes to Christ and say, done. This is what he has promised and he will surely do it. Let me give you one more passage. If you are faint-hearted or you know someone who is, look at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. This is for the faint-hearted in Christ, mind you. These are for the faint-hearted who are believers in Christ. You are giving them the promises of God rooted in the very character of God. This is wonderful. If you are a Christian who are faint-hearted, soak yourself in Isaiah 35. Meditate on it. Wrap yourself in it and say, this is is true. Isaiah 35, starting verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Notice here, verse 3. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. What do you say to them and those with anxious heart? Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isn't that glorious? If you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this is to you. Say, no, Josh, this is to ancient Israel. No, the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we see in the New Testament that we are grafted in so that we can claim these promises of God as being in Jesus Christ. And you see the wonderful imagery. It's a desert. It's scorched. You're thirsty. You're 
You're, you're exhausted, you're feeble, you're, you're, you're just near death. Take courage, fear not. Your God will come. And he will execute vengeance and recompense, but he will save you. And the, the desert will become an oasis. Water will flow, trees will sprout, and you will be joyful and singing with joy. The lame will leak, the eyes of the blind will be opened. So if you are exhausted and feeble and anxious now, take courage by looking to that. Well, Josh, isn't happening now. No, but it will happen. And if you are in Christ, you will be there. You will find recompense. You will find joy inexpressible. You will find all your sorrows and sighing will, be, will flee away. Isn't that good? You're meant as a Christian to hold tight to these promises and to take courage and to take heart, to be strengthened, to be encouraged by these promises that are to you and that are rooted in the very faithfulness of God. They will happen because he keeps his promises. And as you read scriptures, you see that he has always kept his promises. He always will. So, back to our text. How do you encourage the faint-hearted? You go to them, brother, and say, Brother, Isaiah 35. And you read it to them. And you say, hold tight, brother. Take heart, brother. Take courage, brother. God is faithful and true, and this is what he says to you. Is that encouraging? If you believe in Jesus, if you trust the promises of God, it should be. Who will do all this? Your God will come. He will save you. Look up. Your redemption comes. Next, Paul says, help the weak. Help the weak. Of course, this is similar to the faint-hearted. The weak in the Greek is literally without strength. But I think Paul is likely referring to the spiritually weak or the emotionally weak. He could mean the weak of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. The weak in conscience, or it could be possibly talking about the weak of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the weaker members of the body. He's probably referring to the weak members of those who are weak in conscience or are new babes in Christ. Maybe they're immature in Christ, they're new. And we are to help them. We are to encourage them, build them up, not just run over them. And it's interesting here, the word translated as help has hold fast to associations. For instance, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Paul's talking about two elders, he says, holding fast the faithful word. And that word holding fast in the Greek is the same word here as help. And interesting, in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke 16, I think it's Luke 16 or Luke 6, it also has the connotation of the association of being devoted to. So there's this sense of holding fast to or being devoted to. In Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. That word devoted to in the Greek is the same word as help here that Paul's using. I think Paul is, is, is saying something similar to 1 Corinthians 12, 22. He says, the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. In other words, don't abandon the weak. They are necessary. Hold fast to them. Be devoted to them. Hold them up. Again, doesn't this make sense in, if you're thinking of soldiering? Would we leave our weaker brother behind? We parachute into enemy territory. 
We get into a firefight. One of them gets, gets, gets wounded. And we say, well, hope you make it out. And we leave. Would that be right? No, we take our brother with us. We hold fast to him. We don't say, you're unnecessary. You're expendable. No. We have a mission to fulfill. And he is part of it. We're going toward Jesus Christ, but also remember that our glorification, our glorying in Jesus Christ and, and giving him glory includes loving on those who are called by his name. By modeling God's love for us to the world by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So definitely our brother who is wounded, who is weak, is part of our mission to glorify Jesus Christ. So how can we say, I love you, Jesus. I don't want to mess with this guy who has your name. No. Love for Christ will include love for those who are his. Loving Christ, loving your brother to the glory of Christ. Think about this. If you are weak, how helpful would it be for someone to grab a hold of you, maybe by your, by your shirt or shoulders, and, say, and in your weakness and your exhaustion, and they say something like this. I won't let you go. I am devoted to you. Hold on to me, and we will walk together. Would that be encouraging? Would that be helpful? Maybe have you seen those people who help, right? Well, I got to run, right? For a little, they just kind of put their hand out a little bit, and then they move on. Or they just kind of, oh, what's going on? Okay, that sucks, and they move on, right? Or that stinks, they move on, Right? They don't want to invest themselves. They don't want to, maybe you've seen someone on the side of the road or people just kind of go by and be like, oh, unfortunate, all right, um, you got a phone? Okay, you can call somebody and they move on. As opposed to someone who stops, gets out, investigates, spends time, holds fast, is devoted to seeing them helped. You know the difference. This works if you are committed to the walk. You love and desire and stretch toward Christ, but you are weak. So your brother comes along and says, I will hold you up as we walk. What a joy to be able to walk toward Zion in the company of friends. But if you are not committed to the walk, if you do not, do not, do not desire Christ, you could see this as someone being meddling or intrusive or overbearing. You're weak, and so someone comes and says, I'm going to hold fast to you. I'm going to hold you up, and we're going to walk together. And you're like, uh, get off. It doesn't work if you don't have the same mission. If they come and say, I'm going to hold you up. We're going to, I'm going to lift you up. I'm not going to let you go. I'm devoted to you. We're going to walk together. We're going to go there to that mission. You say, what mission? I don't see it. Before long, the person who's trying to help you, you're going to be like, okay, you're meddling. You're, too, you're just too uncomfortable. I don't want any part of this. But if you have that same mission, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ and you're weak and you're stretching towards him and you're like, I need help. And someone comes along and says, I've got you, brother. Let's go. You're like, yes, amen. I have help. Our mission will be accomplished. I will get there. So how do you help the weak? You hold fast to them. You don't abandon them. You point them to their Savior, like you do with the faint-hearted. But you must be careful. If they show no desire for that mission, if they show no desire for Jesus Christ, no desire for Zion, Warn them, I'm seeing no desire for Christ. I'm trying to help you, but you're not walking. You're dragging your feet. I'm trying to help you. Come on, let's go. Warn them, 
And if they persist in showing no desire for Christ, let them go. We are to hold fast to the weak, not the dead. It seems harsh. But if you hold fast to the dead and you're dragging a corpse to Zion, what's going to happen? You're going to be weighed down. You're going to be pulled back. But if you see that little pilot light burning in them, you say, I see you love your Savior Jesus Christ. I see you've committed yourself to him. I see you've made a profession of faith. I'm going to grab a hold of you, and you're going to grab a hold of me, and we're going to run to Jesus. But if you say, no, and I, I want to keep turning back, I want to get in the way, and I, want to, I don't want Jesus, I don't like where we're going, you say, I can't go with you then. When you want the same mission, I will grab a hold of you and you grab a hold of me. But when you want to go back to, to the, the city of destruction, when you want to go back to your sin, I cannot go with you. Finally, Paul says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. That word in the Greek literally means long-tempered. Galatians chapter 5, we see patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And we see, we saw in Colossians 3, 12, he says, among other things, put on patience. We should, not, we should not expect to be all in the same place spiritually. There are babes in Christ. There are mature in Christ. But we are to be patient in all of this. Patient in our admonishing. Patient in our encouraging. Patient in our helping. It can be so easy to say, you should be there by now. What's taking so long? How many times do I have to say this? Why, don't you, why aren't you getting it yet? We can be impatient with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But remember this. How often could God have said the same thing of you? You should be there by now. Why aren't you getting this? As Jesus said to the disciples, are you so slow of understanding? But yet Jesus stayed with them, patiently teaching them, wasn't he? How patient has God been with you? How patient has God been with you? If you're honest, you would say, indescribably patient. Can't even, can't fathom the, patient, the patience of God shown to me. How many times have I fallen? How many times did I have to learn the same thing over and over again? And almost by scratching and crawling that I grow in holiness. How many times has God shown immense, inexhaustible patience with me? And can I show that to my brother? Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 and 16. Yet for this reason, or sorry, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners, but Christ demonstrated his perfect patience to me. 
So we can say, yes, he has destined us for salvation. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, he has destined us for salvation. But has it been and will it, and will it be a spotless, perfect journey? No. What patience God shows in bringing us all the way to salvation. We don't get there. We don't, we don't just float all the way to the end and we never step into sin and we never run into issues but he, we, we go through pain we go through sin and we, we repent achingly sometimes but we know the end is set we are destined for salvation he will present us blameless you go to verse 23 of chapter 5 may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. God's patience is such that your destiny will be fulfilled. Not because of your tenacity, not because of your strength. If we're honest, we are described in this verse 14. Maybe, maybe you're faint-hearted, maybe you're weak, maybe you need to be admonished. We all are that at some point. We're all that, one of those at some point. It is not the, our strength. It is not the strength of the church that does it. It is the power of God by the Spirit of God working through the Scriptures and, yes, through the church to bring about what He has called us to. Isn't that wonderful? We can rest in the patience of God and in resting in that, we can show patience to our brothers and sisters. Be patient with the unruly. Be patient with the faint-hearted. Be patient with the weak understanding God's amazing patience for us. So we're not tempted to lord it over, to feel superior. Oh, all these unruly, weak, faint-hearted people, oh, they're annoying. No. Seen from God's perspective, that's all of us. And we needed his patience, we needed his grace and, so, and his love, and so can we show that to our brothers and sisters in Christ with him as our standard? I think we can Let's pray. Father, your patience toward us is indescribable, inexhaustible. Help us, Father, to stand in that, to, to, to meditate on that, to, to operate in that, to, to show patience and love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the same time, to point out, to correct in love and gentleness because we care. Help us to encourage the faint-hearted, to put the promises of Scripture, your promises, in front of their face, to encourage them to take heart, to hold fast to, the, to your promises because they come out of you. They're rooted in your faithfulness. Help us, Father, to help the weak. Father, if we are faint-hearted, we are weak, if we are unruly, help us to be open and receptive to the correction of our brothers and sisters, to the encouragement of our brothers and sisters, to the help of our brothers and sisters, so that we are not prideful, we're not building ourselves up in pride, but we are humbled under the cross to say, I need help, I need encouragement, I need admonition, because we have as our common goal the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We are marching toward our objective, which is Jesus Christ, your son. 
And we do all this rooted in the gospel of Christ, not so that we can gain acceptance, earn acceptance, earn anything from you, but because of faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted. And so we walk joyfully in hope and expectation that you will bring us all the way home, that you will present us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe, trust that you are faithful and you will bring it to pass. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.